Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves. And I'm Don Bishop. We're your hosts for Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Bob Jacklin, and he'll be answering your most important questions on fly fishing, the salmon fly hatch on the Madison River. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Bob a question, just go to our home page, www.askaboutflyfishing.com. Click on the link below the description of the show where it says click here to ask Bob Jacklin your most important question. We'll receive your questions immediately, and we'll be trying to answer as many of your questions as possible on this live show. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about one hour after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast anytime. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll talk with Bob Jacklin and find out about a monster 30-inch, 10-pound brown trout he caught last week. Once in a generation, an innovation comes along that turns an industry on its head. In fly fishing, this is without a doubt the AST generation. AST, Advanced Shooting Technology, is scientific angler's patented dry, slick coating that enhances every aspect of floating line performance. Shootability, castability, floatability, durability. Look for AST in Scientific Angler's Mastery Series and Ultra 4 fly lines. And please remember, try an AST formulated line just once and no other fly line will ever do. Visit www.scientificanglers.com or call 800-430-5000. That's 800-430-5000 to find your nearest Mastery Series dealer. Before we introduce Bob Jacklin, we'd like to let you know about the great gifts we have to give away tonight. Bob has been kind enough to provide not one, but two autographed copies of his book, Fly Fishing the Yellowstone in the Park, which was co-authored by Gary LaFontaine, and his DVD, Fly Tying with Bob Jacklin, for our drawing tonight. This book is the best thing to have Bob at your side when you fish the Yellowstone River in the park. Included are a hatch chart, a list of popular flies, and more than 20 recipes for the most effective patterns that catch fish on the Yellowstone River. If you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage, which is at www.askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under Bob's section that says Register for Drawing. Just click on that link and fill out the form. We'll be announcing the winner at the end of the show. Bob Jacklin is our guest tonight. Since moving to West Yellowstone, Montana, some 37 years ago, Bob has established himself as an icon in the world of fly fishing. His shop, Jacqueline's Fly Shop, is a popular stop for fly fishers on the west side of America's first national park. He's a charter member of the Federation of Fly Fishers and currently serves as president of the Rocky Mountain Council of the Federation. He was one of the first to receive Federation certification as a master casting instructor, and he now serves on the committee which evaluates master instructor candidates. In 2004, Bob was elected to the Fly Fishing Hall of Fame, a crown jewel and an extraordinary career. He remains active in teaching, lecturing, running his business, guiding, fishing, and he's an innovative fly tire. He's on the pro staff for St. Croix Rods, Ross Reels, and Cortland Line, and with all this, 
He remains the consummate nice guy, approachable by all. His book, Fly Fishing the Yellowstone in the Park, was co-authored with Gary LaFontaine, and his fly tying videos are extremely popular. I've personally had an opportunity to see Bob in action a number of times. I'm impressed with his ability to analyze tricky problems in fly casting or tying and to come up with a remarkably sensible, straightforward solution, which he then passes on to his audience in his ever easygoing style. If you ever have the opportunity to see Bob at the shop or out on the lecture circuit, don't miss it. It's just a huge pleasure for us to have Bob Jacklin on our show. Welcome, Bob. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for quite an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's well-deserved. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, Bob, uh, you started fly fishing and tying at early ages. Uh, how did you find your way from New Jersey to, the, to West Yellowstone? I looked at a uh, fly, uh, of course, I was always a fly tire and fly fisherman from a little kid. I went in the Army when I was 18, and I uh, read a book about, uh, I read a field and stream about a man who took his son on a tour in Yellowstone Park around the lower loop, and they fished a fire hole in the Yellowstone, and, and I was already selling flies in the fly fisherman, and those days not much was written in the early 60s except a little bit in Ray Bergman's book, Trout. So I decided I'd save my money for three years, and when I got out, I would drive to Yellowstone. I didn't even have a car, but that's what I did. I saved my money for three years. I had a brand-new Volkswagen Bug paid for, and I drove to, to uh, not West Yellowstone, but I drove to Yellowstone Park, and then and with a series of a week I found West Yellowstone and kind of made that my headquarters. But I got to see the whole United States unroll in front of me, at least from the northern portion. And I, I was in the Army Band. I'm very proud of that, and I served... Uh, three years, and I, I saw the whole East Coast. I saw New York and Washington, D.C., New Jersey, Virginia. I played at the Waldorf Astoria and Atlantic City on the Steel Pier. But I never saw our country. And being a fisherman or fly fisherman, I got to see the Missouri River, and I came over to Ogie Pass and saw the Grand Tetons, and something said, this is where I should live. <laughs> and then you didn't go back to New Jersey, I take it, right? I did for five years. I went to college at nights, and I did uh, play music, and I did things for about five years, and at that point I decided I'm going to open my own business, and I did. And, and you've been in West Yellowstone ever since. Then. Ever since. Terrific, terrific. Well, um, we all know that you caught a fish of a lifetime on one of your own fly patterns last week, and everybody wants to know all the details, at least all the details that you're willing to share. Oh, I'm willing so, to share it all. <laughs> so it's tell all us luck. all about it. Okay, well, it's all luck, and we started out having kind of a tough four days. I'm working with FT Productions out of Denver that are doing a, a video on my casting, and I wanted to do a, a DVD on how to fly cast, and that's what we did for four days. But we also wanted to do a TV show that sometimes should air after the first of the year, so we incorporated both. But we couldn't find any areas where, that were out of the wind. The weather was poor last week, and, um, and it started to get nice on Thursday. And uh, we tried a couple of spots. We took some film. We made some shots of the various casts. I got a casting pond the Federation put in years ago right across the street. But we couldn't get any time on the pond without the wind blowing. And for demonstrating casting, I don't want any wind. With the wind, I can fish with the wind without a big, big problem. But when I'm demonstrating how to cast, I don't want the wind that, uh, blowing. So anyway, we managed to get some good footage. And then what I did, something a little different than anybody else has done, I think, is I showed a basic cast on the, on the casting pond with my rings. Then we put the rings down in the river. And then the next thing you see is a shot when it gets done of me casting on water, how to do it, 
on on camera. And then we went back and forth. It took us four days doing this, but I got the reach cast and mending the line and all the important things and then the basic three casts. So we're in the, in the process, we wanted to do a little show on fishing. The fish were not rising. We're not cooperating. We fished an area just below Hebgen Dam where the river bends around and there's a big outcropping. Well, Joan Wolf and Gary Borger and Mel Krieger, everybody who's done a fly casting DVD, they always ask you to look at the line, but you can't see the line because it's in the air. Very difficult in the color of the line. So I found an old line that Cortland sent me, I believe, and it was a really bright green line. But this outcropping showed a dark water below, and, and I'm, we're hope, we got our fingers crossed. It looked good on, on the camera, but we haven't seen it yet finished. It looks like the line's going to stand out and, and really be real bright. So I can do a DVD on fly casting, you'll see the line react. So we were there at this spot. There's a nice riffle, a deep hole, and it's kind of an old bait fisherman area where you're allowed to keep a couple fish and you're allowed to bait fish. And the area is below, below Hebgen Dam on the Madison. About a mile of river, it flows down into Quake Lake. And, of course, Quake Lake is a big estuary, and that holds the big trout. And these big fish move up and down. And the other, the other thing is that for the years now, maybe 20 years, everybody, including myself, is catch and release. And we're releasing all these 18 inches, 20 inches, 25 inches. So there's a fish like 30 inches could possibly be in there, maybe even larger. Well, I got to the point where I was showing a nymph technique. I had a new indicator. I had a little March Brown nymph on that I tie. I'm casting up in the riffle fairly close to the bank, not way out in the head in the middle of the river. And I lost two or three rigs in, on the bottom. And you think I'd get disgusted. And after the third one, I put on another March Brown. And this time I put a dropper above it, a little green caddis worm. I tie myself, just nothing to it, a little dubbed green body and then wrapped with some, uh, some kind of silly legs or something. It looks like a little worm, just a caddis worm. And the fish took that and I got a hit. And we're on camera rolling. And I made the cast. <laughs> it twitched. I got it. And I said to myself, this is a really big fish. And I didn't know what I had. And to be honest with you, I thought I had a sucker because he was on the bottom. And I finally, in the deeper water, I was wading. But looking down, I saw the fish. I said, he's bigger than any steelhead I ever caught. And it was the <laughs> biggest thing I had seen. And I'm, I was convinced it was a sucker, but I didn't say anything on camera. But I was also convinced that I want to land this fish. I don't care what it was. And when finally, after it seemed like a long time, maybe five minutes of fighting him in and out, he rolled on the surface. I could see it was a huge brown. And we got pictures of me bringing him right around. He circled me twice right in the shallow water before I could. I got his head in the net, and then I had to grab the net and lift it up and hang on to his tail to be able to hold him because he was 30 inches long. <laughs> so that's all luck, but, I, but it was at least my luck. And I yeah. did keep the fish. I'm a taxidermist, though I haven't done any work in a few years. But this fish is going to hang on the wall. And... The fight was not spectacular. It was a big fish. I caught him on four-pound tippet, maximum four-pound ultra green, so I didn't have a big heavy rig. And um, he deserves a place on the wall, but he didn't fight spectacularly. He just was dogging it on the bottom, and I think it was an older fish. So I'll have the scales red in the fall when I mount him. I'll send the scales to fishing game, and they'll tell me how old he was. Sure. Wow. Well, that surely is a fish of a lifetime. Well, that really is. That's that's why I he's going to go on the wall. He deserves a place. I mounted a 15-pound brown for fishing game that's hanging in the Bozeman Fishing Game Office, and that came out of Hebgen Lake. But I believe this to be the largest trout ever caught that I'm aware of on the Madison River. I'll be darned. I never heard of one 10 pounds before. Wow. And, I, and I've been after a 10-pound brown. I mentioned it publicly many times, and that, but I thought I'd get it on the Missouri. 
and I've caught a couple of sevens and maybe one eight-pounder. I let let them all go, so I'm not sure if I guessed uh, guess seven and eight. But this one, this one, I didn't let go, and we weighed him, and he weighed in a little shy of ten pounds two two month, two hours after I caught him, and he was exactly thirty. So I'm calling him ten. He was close enough, and uh, he was thirty inches right to the tape. And he took the little the little green worm, the little yeah, he took the little caddis worm, and not the March brown nymph, which is my favorite nymph. So so much for big fish being totally carnivorous, huh? And it was three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> the sun out. He broke and, you know, all the, the rules, didn't he? And we made that show. We wanted to catch a couple other fish in that pool, and for two days we couldn't catch a fish prior to, to this big fish or after it. We couldn't catch a regular sized trout or a twelve inch. We caught one seven inch whitefish and one ten inch whitefish, and that's going to be our show. <laughs> we couldn't get another fish, so we got two whitefish and a ten inch brown. That was our, that's going to be the show on television. Oh, but that's the way it was, you know. Yeah, yeah. But it was quite. I'm I'm quite uh, obviously pretty happy. I didn't know what to say when I landed. I was on camera. I didn't know what to say, and that's the biggest brown I ever caught. Oh gosh. Yeah. Oh, that's well, terrific. Well, Bob, I caught three to... steelhead this spring, and they were all three of them were smaller than that brown was. <laughs> wow. But anyway, I'm looking forward to the salmon fly hatch. You'll be glad to talk about it. Yeah. And we are we have caught a couple fish on salmon flies already just in the last two days. Well, we, we definitely have a, an audience that's interested in our topic tonight. And, and we thought we'd start off with several questions that have been submitted sort of regarding the life cycle of the salmon fly uh, and, and also how the, the flies behave. Can you give us some kind of an update on that? Sure, and in the whole the whole stonefly family, there's yes. a lot of different flies. But on the in the West here, we call it the giant salmon fly for the salmon color. Down in Colorado, you guys call it the willow fly in some cases. But up here in the Northwest, we have the largest variety of all of them. It's the Turinarsis californicus fly, and that's the great big salmon fly. And it's a three-year life cycle. So they lay their eggs, and it takes three years for these to these nymphs to grow large enough to where they're immature enough, ready to hatch. So every year you get a hatch, and some years a hatch is possibly a little better than others. But I fished this hatch for about 37 years. And, you know, coming from New Jersey, I caught fish on size 28 flies as a young kid. And out here and catching fish on a size 4 fly is just right up my alley. I love it. When the, when the flies hatch, the adults, do the giant salmon fly, do they behave all pretty much the same as, as other types of stone flies in terms of the, the nymph behavior and then the, the adult uh, behavior? I think they're all pretty close. The stone fly doesn't emerge in midstream and none of them do that I know of. They crawl to the bank and crawl up on a stick or a willow or something on a rock generally and then they dry out and bust open and the fly emerges. Usually the salmon fly will crawl up on a willow, actually, on a, right on the willows, and then when they emerge, they go to the willow until they mature a little more, and then the, the male and female will mate. And they mate on the willows together, and then later on the eggs will develop, and the female will fly and dip her body over the water and deposit these eggs. And that's when the trout go for them. That's right. And if the female fly is generally a little larger than the male, and it has the great big black egg sac and those eggs are very dense and they hit the water and they go right for some reason go right on down to the bottom and get lodged somewhere in the bottom and their nymphs will hatch out within probably 30 days or something or less. Hmm. Are there different uh, uh, varieties of stoneflies on the Madison itself? 
Yes, most of our western rivers have several. We have the large California salmon fly, we call it, and then we have the, the golden stone, which is just, and that has several varieties too, and I'm not really a, a real good entomologist, but there's several varieties in the golden stone. We basically have most all the stoneflies here. After the golden, you have the western yellow or the little yellow sally. Yesterday on the river, there was a lot of these small little olives, I call it a little olive stone. We have the early uh, brown or black stone that comes out in March, the same as they do up in New York State on the big rivers. We have that little black stone. And then later in the summer, almost August, you'll get the real minute, almost the size 18, little, I uh, forget the uh, Latin name for it, but it's a little very, very bright little fluorescent green stone fly. So we got a lot of different stones and a lot of different sizes, but basically there's about six different ones I copied. The salmon fly, the golden stone, western yellow, little olive stone, the early black stone, and the little fluorescent green. Those six pretty well do it in different sizes. The fans are also wondering, uh, Bob, if you could uh, describe a little bit about the different sections of the Madison River and how how well populated different portions of the river might be by the salmon fly or, or other stone flies? Sure. The salmon fly is a rough water fly. He likes a fast run and a lot of heavy boulders, and, and that's where you'll find them. So that the fly hatches starts down in the Bear Trap Canyon. At one time before any any dams at Ennis or, or Hebgen Lake or anything was involved, that hatch, we suspect, started down around Three Forks, Montana, and all the way up to Madison, all the way up right up till the Yellowstone Park. But what happened with all the dams, we got things kind of goofed up, and we have a hatch in the Madison in early June or about mid-June, and it, and it goes right up into the Madison in the park, and it's not a very good hatch. It's sparse, but some of my guides have caught a few fish in the park and the riffles, on a big salmon fly already in the past week or 10 days. But in the Firehole Canyon, that's rough water again, even though the water is warmer, you get a good hatch around the 10th of June of salmon flies. And we had a little guiding and we've had some salmon fly action already. So we have that. And then down below Hebgen Lake is your colder river and because of Hebgen Dam and then of course all the way in the Quake down into past Quake Lake into Ennis Lake. So the hatch starts in the Bear Trap around 15th of June 10th of June, just depends on, on the date, and right now it's still going on a little bit. And then the first thing you know, it pops up above Ennis Lake. And of course, it went right through Ennis Lake at one time. Now there's no longer flies in the lake, but they pop up uh, right above the lake. And they're always at Ennis, Montana. I clock them on about the 20th of June every year. And I thought I was going to be a little later off this year. And by golly, on the 19th, there's a guy who came back and reported seeing some salmon flies down in the Varney section. That's the first section we fish. I've had guides there uh, yesterday and today. Not a lot of flies flying at all. I saw a couple, but the fish are responding and coming up to the dry fly. So that's good. And now for the next 10 days or possibly two weeks, those fish will work their way upriver constantly all the way up to Quake Lake. They'll skip Quake, obviously, and start above Quake Lake in the river and hatch right up to Hebgen Dam. So there are no salmon flies in any still waters. That's correct. They, they like the fast moving. And the Ennis area down there, the river moves fast, but it doesn't have a lot of that heavy rock spots. There's a few places, and that's where the flies will congregate, But they're, and for the nymphs too. They like well-oxygenated water, and heavy water is their best. And then they'll crawl up on the bank. But that whole area was always my favorite down above Ennis. I even thought about moving my store there many years ago. And just because I enjoy that 
it breaks up into a series of channels, and the fish are right under the bank. I mean, they're literally under. You got to put the fly under the grass, under the bank, to be able to get one to grab your fly. But mm. and then they can be out in the middle of the riffle too. They're they're all over. But the riffles are the key. That's where the fly emerges from, and that's where it's most likely to lay the eggs again. So then, ab above Hebgen Lake. Um that's where you say it basically thins out as far as the salmon fly, but there are yeah, some it's over. up there. It doesn't yeah. come anywhere above the lake. It's all over. Oh, it doesn't. Okay. So no, pretty it much does before the hatch. That's what I'm saying. There, uh, we get an earlier hatch, like right now or like last week above the lake, but it doesn't. There's not enough hatch out to really make what you'd call a, a hatch, other than the Firehole Canyon has a good little hatch about June the 10th. But pretty much between Innes and Hebgen Lake is the area that a person would want to focus on for the hatch. That's the area that's written about so much as, as the month the Madison goes wild. That's the area everybody's trying to capture, where the flies are and where to fish. And we all have a different thought. I've always fished behind the hatch all the years. But there's other guys try to catch ahead of the hatch. And still other guys are looking for the insects. They want to be in the hatch. So there's all kinds of theories on that. It appears that two people wrote us that are both going to be out there around July 8th or 9th. Right. And they're wondering if that, uh, if, if the hatch will still be on at that point. How long does this hatch go? It goes from about 10 days to two weeks, and it could go fast or go slow. So far, it looks like it's going slow. The guys who come out over the 4th every year always find some salmon flies activity, but it may be high up on the river or it may be down mid midsection. I'm guessing by the 8th or 9th that will be about over, but Jimmy Darren, the famous fisherman from New York State, gave me a little lesson when I was a kid and in his store, and a young man in the Army, and I stopped in. He said, the salmon fly will be over when you get out there in July, son, but he said, you fish the big fly anyway because those trout have a memory. And I always <laughs> remembered that, and I did fish the fly and caught some fish. I didn't knock them dead. But, you know, the salmon fly is more of a time of year. The trout get used to it. That's one of the first big hatches we have before the mayfly and before most of the caddis. And those fish are used to feeding on top. And if you get a perfect float on a fly, you could take a fish just about any time in July. And, of course, by the 9th or 10th of July, if the Madison salmon fly hatch is over, I would recommend the Yellowstone in Yellowstone Park, the lower Yellowstone. It's open for fishing already. You can get down there, and that has a big hatch of salmon flies, and it's pretty much all cutthroat trout through the Black Canyon and down in that tower area. And that's quite good normally around the 10th to the 15th of July. Okay. Well, Bob, we're going to take a, a brief break here, and then we'll be picking up with more questions. Uh, when we return, we'll be talking more with Bob Jacklin about fishing the salmon fly hatch on Montana's Madison River. This segment of our show is brought to you by the Platte River Fly Shop in Casper, Wyoming featuring a first-class website covering all aspects of fly fishing the tailwaters of the North Platte River, including up-to-date local fishing reports, fly patterns, guide services, and online shopping for top-of-the-line gear for any travel destination. The Platte River Fly Shop provides a professional guide staff for the Blue Ribbon, Trophy Gray Reef, and Miracle Mile sections of the North Platte River. Visit their extensive website at www.wyotrout.com. That's wyotrout.com. Or call the Platte River Fly Shop at 1-307-237-5997. That's 1-307-237-5997. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Bob Jacklin about the salmon fly hatch on the Madison River. 
If you'd like to ask Bob a question, go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and click on the link. Click here to ask Bob Jacqueline your most important question. We'll receive your questions promptly, and we'll try to answer as many of these questions live as we can. Bob, one question that, that came in uh, sort of relates to right where we took off, and, and that is in terms of what areas are there on the Madison River that are available to uh, newcomers, out-of-staters, uh, where they can have uh, pump public camping areas and uh, set up for, for their fishing experience? Okay, the Madison River really got its reputation from good fishing, obviously, but the float fishing caught on with Pat Barnes being the first one to ever introduce the McKenzie-style riverboat, and Bud Lilly sure made it real famous many years ago, and I was lucky enough to, uh, to secure a job with Bud Lilly in 1970, and I taught his fly fishing school with Charlie Brooks, and, we, and I guided on the river along with Bud's son, um, Greg, and there were some really good guides, and what made it famous is you can't wade that Madison very well when the water's up and rolling. I mean, it has got bowling ball-sized rocks, and, and it is really tough to wade. So that's where the float fishing came in. Also, the fact that with heavy water, like we have fairly heavy this year, um, it puts the, the bugs on the bank, and the fish are right on the bank under the willows. So, yes, you can wade to Madison, you can do some wade fishing, but it's tough to get out in the middle of the river and cast to the willows. So you can work upriver, but it's really difficult. Floating is is generally the best way. The one section you can fish, and it gets crowded, but it is good fishing, is between Quake Lake and Hebgen Dam. There's a good mile, maybe even a mile and a quarter of river there that's probably the finest, and I'm saying this as my own experience, probably the finest trout fishery we have in the state of Montana. Just that mile is loaded with fish. It's loaded with fishermen, but I've taken a series of fish in the three, four, and possibly a couple five-pounders over the years, and lots of nice fish. It's loaded with fishermen, but it is also loaded with trout. And is that a section that needs to be floated as well? No, we don't float you that section. We're not allowed that. We can float it, but you can't fish in the boat. So yep. we, so that's a good wade fishing. The other wade fishing that's become real popular, and again, it's uh, accessible, is the three-dollar bridge and Nature Conservancy, and some of the people have worked very hard on securing that bridge for the public, and it's called $3 because the man that owned it many years ago would charge you 3 bucks to park your car there, and he made more money doing that than running cattle. <laughs> but anyway, that's all open to the public now thanks to, to some of these entities. And also the area around Slide Inn, and Slide Inn is a place that Kelly Gallup opened that, that owns it now, and that furnishes... Um, different refreshments and gasoline and guides and stuff down on the Madison. And that area between there and Reynolds Pass Bridge is all, all accessible to the public. It's tough fishing, and, and a lot of the good fishing is along the bank. So you can wade it. You can walk along the bank. But most of the time, you really don't wade the Madison very well. You're fishing along the bank. That's all you can do. That river is, is really fast and rolling. Even down by Ennis, when it's up high, it's a tough one to wade. As, as far as we get down below the uh, West Fork area, you can still wade it. And then there's a place called Lions Bridge. And from Lions Bridge to Mackatee Bridge and Mackatee to Varney Bridge and Varney to, to Ennis, Montana, a distance of about 60 miles, that area there is pretty much dominant float area, not because you can't wade it. It's just real difficult to wade. Now, down by Ennis, you can wade it a little bit, especially if the water drops a little. You can wade around some of those channels. And if you're a good wader and you carry your wallet in a plastic bag, you can wade that water. <laughs> <laughs> Word of warning there, huh? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I've read, read that sometimes uh, the, the 
water below Innis is not as good for fishing because it's, it gets too warm in the summertime. Is that, have you found that to be true? That's a fact. However, okay. it's very good fishing in the spring. So somehow, and it's mostly browns, but there's rainbows too, somehow those browns grew real big and there's a good supply of fish. We call it the Bear Trap Canyon right below Ennis Dam. From there all the way down to Gray Owl or, or down further, the Three Forks down in there. And that water down through Nara section gets a little too warm because Ennis Lake acts like a solar heater. So it gets a little too warm for fish. In some years, it got to the point where there could be a real problem of a fish kill. But uh, so far, we're able to get enough water generated where they release a little more out of Ennis Lake. Uh, and the, the Montana Power people have cooperated with fish and game very nicely over the years to try to cool that down uh, to keep that water so we won't have a lot of fish kills. So to say the fishing isn't as good, I'm not going to say that because it is quite good in the spring. You get a Mother's Day caddis, and there's some big fish. There's some three- and four-pound browns down in there. It gets a salmon fly hatch. But, yes, in the middle of the summer, it's a good place to float with a float tube and just have a good time because fishing gets a little tougher in that area. Not that you can't catch them, but it does warm up a little bit more. When the water is in the higher temperatures, do the fish just kind of go to a dormant stage then? They just stop feeding? Yes. Just... Their metabolism works the opposite, just like it works in the winter. When it gets real cold, they, uh, well, not the opposite, the same. When it gets real cold, they stop feeding. And when it gets real warm, they stop feeding. They don't need all that nourishment. And they're not moving. And they're probably down in the cooler spots on the river, down near the bottom. So even though the, the upper temperature of the water is quite high, as much as 65 or something in it could be. They're down in some cooler spots and maybe some cool springs and just laying low. You know, the fire hole up in the, in, the, in the park here is the same thing, only those fish, they actually move in schools, and they're moving already, I'm understood. And by midsummer, there's places in the fire hole where there's no fish at all. They simply move to a cool spring, and for every hot geyser you see in the fire hole, there are numerous cold springs enter that river. So these fish are in the cold springs, and they're just hard to approach. So somehow they've adapted. We've, we've had some questions inquiring about uh, fishing regulations on the Madison and where there might be catch and release areas. One thing I've noticed in the Montana Game and Fish regulation book, they have some very nice maps of the different rivers, including the Madison, where they uh, some of these geographic points that you mentioned, such as the bridges and that sort of thing, they, they give pretty good reference. Is the Madison a river that can be fished year-round? Yes, it is. A uh, portion of it is closed down in the catch-and-release area. is closed uh, for spawning area, so it closes about the end of February, but it's pretty much open year-round. End of February to the third week in May, and then it opens. The area right below Hebgen Dam, where I caught my big fish, is open year-round. And even in the midwinter, if you get a warm day, which doesn't always happen, you can take some nice fish down there right below the dam. Uh, so that's good, and there's a mile section. The only the only problem is you can't get down there unless you have a snowmobile or snow skis or something to get further down the river. But you can fish that area right along the highway, and it is quite good. And April is absolutely loaded with fishermen. There's dozens of fishermen fishing that every day, that section of river. Uh, then the river is open again year-round all the way down below Varney Bridge, from Varney through the town of Ennis down to, Heb to uh, Ennis Lake. That's open year-round for fishing. Uh, what happens in the fall, though, is Montana Power Department starts letting a lot more water out to feed the lower areas of the Missouri River, and that water becomes cold and high, and they're dropping Hebgen, and for some reason that lower river doesn't seem to fish 
as well. But during late October, you can still use a great big woolly bugger streamer and float it down in the Ennis area and do well on some of the bigger browns on uh, streamer flies. Where, where is, uh, Bob, where is the catch and release area then? Okay, catch and release is um, you're allowed to keep some fish. I think there's five fish any size and only one over 18 inches from, and from Hebgen Dam down all the way through Quake Lake. And then once it hits, spills over Quake Lake, from there all the way down to Varney Bridge, it's catch and release. And then after that section, from Varney down, you're allowed again a limit of five, and I think only one can be a rainbow or no rainbows. I'm not, I have to check my regs. I don't keep any fish for so many years. I don't even, I don't, I read them, but I don't even remember them half the time. But um, I believe it's uh, only browns down there or maybe one rainbow. They're trying to build up that rainbow population in the lower river. The browns are doing quite well. Are there any books available on the Madison that you'd recommend to folks? I don't. I can't think of anything in just the one book or, or a book that's written that that describes that Madison as much. But I could certainly cover a little bit uh, tonight about how to fish a salmon fly hatch. That, that sure. we could do. Well, maybe we ought to spill right into that part of it, and then we can talk about some details. Sure. You know, fishing the salmon fly hatch, I always figure, is more a time of year than it is a regular hatch. And if you read hatch or follow hatches, you'd like to go out and these flies are emerging. They're flying all around and you're in the hatch. And out of 37 years of guiding and fishing the salmon fly hatch, I've had fishing probably 10 times like you read about in Field and Stream and Fly Fishermen, uh -huh. where the fish grabbed every fly that you put out and it was just bananas the whole day. I have had fishing that good that if I really told you how good it was, you would have a hard time believing me. But that's 10 times out of 37 years plus so many days a year. So that's not very much. I would say it's less than 10%. But here's how I see the hatch. The hatch occurs and the trout right away know they're around. They feed on the nymphs and gorge themselves. So the big woolly worms and the big sofa pillow or dry or the biggie, big nymphs that you use, uh, the bitch creeks and such, work well along the bank early. Then once your flies get flying, those fish on high water like this year are going to be pushed into the bank. And we cast, we float down the boat and throw that big fly into right into that bank, and these trout are gorging themselves on the salmon flies that drop off the willows or the female dipping her eggs down close to the water, and after she lays her eggs, she falls down, spent or whatever, and falls into the, the river, and these trout are really grabbing them. So they're going to position themselves right under the willows, and the more willows we have, the better it is. So it's a time of year. In other words, what I'm saying is, if I was going out there, which I will be in the next few days, I'll put the big dry on and I'll fish that and have confidence in that all day. Once I find the fish taking flies, if they don't take my fly, then I will give them a rest. I'll give them a smaller fly. I use a size 4 salmon fly. I have my own, after 37 years, I have my own salmon fly tie called the Jacqueline's salmon fly. But the sofa pillow, improved sofa pillow, all of them work well. I don't think my fly works any better than anybody else's, but it works well for me, so I stick with it. But we go to a smaller fly, like a number six golden stone, and maybe the trout won't take the big fly. He'll take the smaller stone. Hmm. Or maybe they'll be on some caddis. It's quite possibly to see a big fish feeding on caddis during that hatch when the big flies are around. But generally, I want to get them on the big fly, so I stick to that number four fly. But there's one trick in fishing the salmon fly hatch. You have to have a nice, I use a six-pound maxima tippet. You've got to have a nice long tippet, and that fly has got to float perfect, like it was not attached to the line at all. If it looks like it's attached a little or slightly drags, 
you will never see a fish on the Madison River. They are that touchy. You can get away with eight-pound test. I've done it. But you can't get away with dragging that fly at all. So you've got to have a long leader, bounce that cast, or check your cast, and that fly has got to float along that bank like it was not even anywhere remotely attached to your fly. Uh, uh, Bob, I've read somewhere that and they talked about, and maybe it's a difference in, in waters, but they talked about fishing the adult in a skittering fashion like you would a, a caddis. And it sounds like you don't fish it that way. I don't fish it that way, and uh, but some guys do, um, and for, you know, rightly so. Once the fly swings down and starts to move, you can skitter it a little bit. I've done that and had some fish chase it, so that's that's an option that works. I normally fish it dead drift, and it depends where. Madison River, I fish the heavy runs out in the middle when I can a little bit, but I mainly concentrate on the willows and the bank. A place like the Box Canyon with the big rainbows and all. I will shoot for the heaviest white water I can find and put that fly right on top of that heavy white water, and I get my share of big fish, or did years ago, down in that canyon. I don't catch them all. I hook them, and they take the fly or I miss them, but I don't land them all. But there's some big fish, but they're going to be in that heavy, heavy water. Is there a particular time of day that, uh, that using these dry patterns is, uh, is particularly beneficial? Your best time of day is from noontime to about 4 o'clock. There's no question in my mind on that. However, I ran into some doctors over the years that used to put their boat in at the Ennis area at 4 in the morning, and they would get what we call, guides call, first water. And they would be down there with first water, and at noontime they'd be going home, and, of course, doctors are used to getting up early in the morning. They're done for the day. And they had claimed they had very good fishing on dry flies. Most of us believe that you wait till noon, and just about noon when it warms up from the, from the evening dew and everything, warms up good, those flies are flying high in the air, and that's the best time to fish the salmon fly hatches midday. And I still believe that, even though I've talked to people who have fished it. In the evening, I've never done as well, but in the morning, I can certainly understand first water. You know, you get a fly trout feeding on salmon flies, and all of a sudden he doesn't see any all night. He sees one at 5 in the morning. He's apt to grab it. Do you use nymphs in the morning? I don't fish as many nymphs as I used to, but I but I enjoy the nymph prior to the hatch. And those guys that, that get ahead of the hatch, those fish are gorging, gorging themselves on nymphs. So I my best nymph ever was just a plain black woolly worm tied with natural black saddle hackle, but a great big black woolly worm weighted. But I've used fancy stone flies I tied, and again, I think they all work about the same. It's the man behind the nymph. It isn't the fly so much. Get the fly out, mend your line, and get it down deep. And deep, I mean a couple of feet. The bank, the Madison is not a deep river by any means. Get it near the bank, and those trout will take it. What, what do you find is the best floating of the salmon fly imitations? You know, they're all good. The sofa pillow is going what I call a high-profile fly with a lot of hackles, the milk wing, the improved sofa pillow, and that's a good one. Floats good and high. My little salmon fly that I tie over the years sits flat in the water. It's got kind of a pontoon body with a dubbed body over the deer hair that's pontooned, and uh, that'll float real well. Getting to patterns, um, I really don't think a pattern means a hoot. I saw one question here mentioned about the, the use of, uh, of foam flies. I've never been a big foam fan being a, being a fly tire, but however, I'm not ruling it out. I use a little foam here or there in a fly that I like. Uh, I think those fl foam flies will work fine. I think you need two things. You need confidence in your fly that it's going to work, and you need that perseverance or that tenacity just to keep that baby out there and going. That box canyon, sometimes I uh, don't do very well at all. 
if somebody was if I was paying a guide and I did as well as I did, I'd probably be feel a little funny because I didn't do very well. But <laughs> I keep that fly out there, and I know during the day I'm going to bring a big boy up. And do I? Most of the time I do, but maybe not many uh, during the day. But I know I will. So that's my own philosophy on the Madison. I keep that big fly on the bank and just keep going, and I bring up my fish. So I, I think there's something to that. And I cover a lot of water. It's not like trying to find a piece of water and fish it real quick and nothing in there, and you move on. And, and I do that. But if you find a spot that really looks good, it's got undercut bank, got a good heavy current next to it, you can almost guarantee there's a fish under there. I spend a few extra minutes and get that fly as tight to that bank as I can get it. You can't believe how tight they are, and the trout will grab it. And I'm talking, you know, nice trout. We're real proud of our trout on the Madison. They're all wild trout. We don't stock them. The average fish is somewhere around probably 16 inches on the lower Madison brown, some nice rainbows. So we're doing real well on the, on, on the size fish. As far as real big fish, no, the Madison doesn't have lots of big fish in that section. Maybe a four-pounder would be a real big one down in the Annis area. But up where you have Quake Lake and that dist between the Quakes and, and uh, Hebgen Dam and Quake Lake, there you got an estuary, and that's why I got a 10-pound fish. And there's probably a fish in there bigger than 10 pounds. Let's take just a real quick break, and when we come back, I think we'll see about uh, dealing with some of the questions about fly tying that have been directed to you. When oh, we great. return, we'll be talking more with Bob about the Madison River salmon fly hatch. AST, Advanced Shooting Technology, is the most important development in fly fishing since the invention of modern fly line. Lefty Cray said that, and if anyone has seen it all, it's Lefty. And if any innovation has improved fly fishing, it's AST, Scientific Angler's revolutionary dry slick coating that produces slicker shooting, longer cast, higher flotation, and better durability. Look for AST in Scientific Angler's Mastery Series and Ultra 4 fly lines. And please remember, try an AST formulated line just once and no other fly line will ever do. Visit www.scientificanglers.com or call 800-430-5000. That's 800-430-5000 to find your nearest Mastery Series dealer. Tell them you heard about them on Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Well, you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Bob Jacklin about the salmon fly hatch on the Madison River. If you'd like to direct a question to Bob, go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and click on the link. Uh, click here to ask Bob Jacklin your most important question. We'll receive the questions promptly and answer as many as we possibly can. Uh, Bob, we have several questions that have come in regarding the fashion in which you tie your flies, and, and actually uh, questions that deal both, both with the adult samafly imitation as well as with the nymphs. Could you give us a rundown on your thinking about those? Sure. I'm always looking for a fly that will float well and handle well and last long. And uh, Pat Barnes, the old pro years ago, had a whole series of different hoppers he collected. And I'm trying to do the same with everybody's salmon fly because no matter who ties it, everybody's fly is a little different. And I always say that's the great part about it because they'll all work. But in my fly, I put, a, uh, I put a pontoon body of deer hair. Actually, it's elk rump hair, but dyed black, running through the whole 3X long hook. And I use a 3X. I use a 4X, too. I never go beyond 4X longer, but 3 or 4X. And I put a good clump of hair all the way out till I get to the bended hook, and then I let it extend about a quarter of an inch and cut it flat. And that's my egg sac. 
And then on that, I put a great big saddle hackle or two, and then I coat that with cement. When I let that dry, that becomes a pontoon. Then I dub my salmon fly orange dubbing over it, and then I put a big elk wing on it. And then instead of, um, instead of a big hackle, I make a small head on my fly with two tufts of brown deer hair, one on top, one on the bottom, and I do a small bullet head with a little collar of what's left over on the deer hair and no hackle there. From the silhouette, I also take my scissors and I cut the fly flat on the bottom, right, right down so it lays flat in the surface film, and all you can see is that orangey body and a small head, not a big head. A lot of guys' fly tires that'll make a salmon fly will put a big head on it. The larger the head, the better it floats, no question. But the small head's got the silhouette. So I've been kind of keyed in on the silhouette on doing it. So that's how I tie my salmon fly. And I tie them in size 4 and 6. How about your nymph patterns? Well, before, nymph you go on, before you go on to the, uh, that, um, on the yeah. nymphs, um, somebody had asked uh, about, they were talking, you know, 3x length, and you said 3x, 4x, and they said uh, that the 6x more approximates the actual size of the fly, but that they've heard that it uh, has, it, it's too big for effective hooking. Is that part of the, the reason for, for choosing the, the 3 or 4x? I've always liked the 4x and the 3x I even like because it's a little shorter. The body is about the same length even on the 3x number 4. You can tie that, and my head is small enough that, uh, that it looks about the right appropriate size. Uh, 4X is a good size, too, and some 4X hooks are a little longer than others, granted. 6X, the only problem that Lee Wolf and talked about is you get a different, a different uh, pull. You get too long of a shank, and it can work its way out like a real long shank streamer hook, and you can work its way out of the mouth of a fish easier than the shorter shank. And Lee, Lee Wolf was personally really convinced in that. He actually liked a short shank hook. The shorter the shank, the better, even on a on a long streamer fly, and just let the let the feathers or the hair hang out off the bat. So that's an interesting concept. I think a three three x or four x is just about perfect. And I yeah. also fish a hundred percent barbless. They um yeah, and the, a lot of people say that the saltwater guys have that right because they're always fishing short shanked hooks for better hooking yeah. ability. So. Yeah, that makes sense when you think about it. Yeah, and tube flies uh, same yep. deal. Yep. Yep. Any recommendations that you have for uh, stone fly nymph ties? You know, it depends what stone fly. And I just had somebody call me last night from Michigan that's very interested in that. I'm going to send them a couple of flies and one of my big March browns, brown nymphs, which really represents a big golden stone. But this big black Turinorsis we have, I think the best imitation I ever found with that is just a plain black woolly worm tie with natural black hackle, weighted real well, and then if I was going to be using a lot more of them, I would put two or three black rubber legs on them to give it a little more life. But I think that fly, when you have the big black nymph, fishes or outfishes anything. It just gives a general, general kind of an idea of the big fly rather than an exact imitation, which I've tied before too. I've tied them both. I like to do a one that's exact and one that's just kind of impressionistic. But that woolly worm, and I think it works best because it's weighted well, and it's right on the bottom, and I think that's the key again, getting that fly right to the fish. So big and black and weighted is the and key. ugly. That's right. Yep, ugly. <laughs> especially ugly. Well, that uh, that those are sure a lot easier to tie than the uh, the exact imitations. Absolutely, yeah. sure. <laughs> and they work just as well, if not better. There are a couple of books out uh, on stone flies. Are there any particular that uh, that you regard highly? 
Uh, no, but there's one I think it was Fred Arbono that he put one out on just stoneflies. I believe he did. It was his mayfly. It was one on the stoneflies, and Eric Leiser years ago did one. Yeah. I'm quite a book collector and have quite a big library, but yeah, I tend yeah. to get them all mixed up. I I have to go back and look at them or research in my in my files, and I put everything on computer last year, so I've got it all at arm's length right there. All my, I got 800 volumes in my library, so it's, oh, I've collected a lot of books. But there's a lot of good things. The one book I don't have right now. A Nymphs by Frank Sawyer, an Englishman, and I want to get that book printed in the 50s. And so I'm after that book right now, and the collectors will uh, have some guys looking for him to get by that book. But he was the guy that invented the peacock, or excuse me, the pheasant tail nymph. Mm. So that's interesting. So I want to do a little research on Frank Sawyer. I heard about him for years, heard about the book, but for some reason I don't have a copy of it. So, sure. so I have my homework to do, and I've got to get that book and see what he has to say. Mm -hmm. I'm always interested in what these guys that have been around a lot longer than I have had to say. I believe I can learn something. And when I go, go to a show and present a casting program, when Joan Wolfe's there and Joe Humphreys and this guy and that guy and Gary Borger and Lefty Cray, I'm listening to whatever they say because usually I pick up something. And that's important, so I do that. And those guys are listening to me, too, I know. But I, I always enjoy listening because we don't always agree. Don't always agree <laughs> on what they're saying. But, but I want to just might say something I might learn and say, hey, why didn't I think about that? One During, book that's out there, gentlemen, is um, as far as detailing out the, the life cycle of the stonefly is, of course, Dave Whitlock's Guide to Aquatic Trout Foods. Yep. Yes. Which, which is just, I think that that book is just an incredible Super. book. Yes, it is. Uh, it's the most detailed I've seen, and, and uh, you really get a good understanding of all the different bugs in there, as, as right. well as uh, he does some things on crustaceans and forage fish and so forth, too. But uh, anything, anything Dave does is always top-notch. Yeah, and considering he does all his own illustrations, right? Yeah. Uh, oh, super. Pretty, pretty amazing book. So, so that's always amazing guy. We talked about color on the on the nymph and the salmon fly. You said you're using a salmon fly. Uh, I think it was dubbing. Dubbing, yeah. yeah. Is there a particular? The is there a, a manufacturer or particular specific color that that you can identify on that? They're all good. The salmon fly orange, whether you, no matter whose brand you buy, and the dubbing works well. I don't like poly yarn. Uh, it's great stuff. Poly will float a hundred years. But as soon as you wrap it on something and take the air out of it and tighten it up, it'll sink. Well, I like dubbing, and I make all my own, and I mix rabbit, dyed orange, and Australian opossum, blend it up, and I get the perfect sort of an off-orange or salmon-color orange, and I dub all my flies. I could tie the fly a lot faster if I used a yarn, but I spend the time to dub each and every fly. And I'm a fairly fast fly tire. I don't go for strictly for speed, but I'm fairly fast. And I can only do about seven salmon flies an hour, and I can do a dozen rural wolves. Mm. So that's just let you know, you know I can do about seven, and that's mm. about it. So I try. But that dubbing, once you make that good dubbing and you put a little uh, gink or something on it to help float it, that baby will float real well. I use a six-pound tippet, and I shake that fly real well and snap it when I'm casting, not enough to break my tippet or anything, hopefully. But I, I kick that water off that fly, dry it off good, and that fly floats good and high for me. Now, you've talked about uh, different places where you might use the dry, and if the dry wasn't working, you might go with the, uh, with the big uh, nymph. Do you ever fish them both, kind of like a hopper-dropper situation? Yes, my guides do. I don't. I prefer the one fly, and I very seldom put two on, though I did the other day for that 10-pounder. I just put a 
a little fly on top because I was hoping to catch a smaller fish and and I wasn't able to do it in that spot. So, but anyway, uh, most of the guides do that, but not all the time. Sometimes we'll start out that way. If the trout aren't taking the dry during the salmon fly hatch, like right now, the hatch is just getting going, we'll put the big nymph and maybe we'll put a salmon fly on top as an indicator. And that works well, but eventually you end up just cutting the big nymph off and fishing just dry because the fish starts slapping the big dry rather than the nymph. Sure. But early in the hatch, remember the Madison is high and somewhat off color. It's just clearing up now. But we don't want it real clear. We actually want it a little on the off color side with about a foot of visibility is perfect. Those fish get along the bank and they can see well and not enough to spook them. When you have low water like we did the last eight years, pretty much the fish are in the middle of the river. They're not getting the flies and therefore they're not eating enough of the flies and not looking for them. They're more spooked at you wading by or floating by or something than they are anything else. So this year we're going to have the flies on the bank and the fish on the bank. Are there weather conditions that you mentioned the water conditions? What about weather conditions that affect the hatch? Uh, usually on a rainy day and an overcast day, it's it's more difficult fishing than it is on a bright sunny day. They want to dry their wings. They want to fly around and mate, lay their eggs. So usually a generally a really bright, sunny, warm day is your best. But I've had some obviously some great fishing on overcast days where they have you know that those fish know what's going on and they have that little little kind of a blanket cover over them with that overcast and they feed a little better. So it's quite possible to find some fish. But you don't see as many flies flying around. Normally on a warm day is when you see the flies, and the more flies around, the better it is. If you can catch it just where the fish are, flies are laying their eggs, these fish are going to be busting them, and you'll see a big spray of water when one of these trout, a two-pound trout, takes a, takes a size four natural fly going down, about two and a half inches long. They really bust some water. And um, as a guide, I always keep my eye open for that. And I've gotten my clients into some nice fish over the years by just being lucky enough to see a big spray of water go up near a certain willow. I'll keep my eye on that willow and get the boat right there away to it and work that spot, and you'll take that one fish. We've had several questions come in that are inquiring about fishing late. You, you mentioned that uh, you fish the adult dries late in the afternoon. What's the fishing like at night, or do you fish at night? Normally we have a caddis emergence at night that takes over and the salmon fly takes a back seat. But I'm not saying you can't catch them. I've caught a few fish in the evening on salmon flies, but they don't really respond. And I think it has something to do with um, you kind of surprise them with a salmon fly. They're looking up at a bright sky and all of a sudden you get a perfect cast and plop that fly down and it doesn't move, it doesn't drag. It plops down and goes just the way it should with the current at the mercy of the current, and those fish take it. I think you surprise them. I'm looking for a word to use, but their instincts take over, and they say, this is it, and, and you got them. But once the, once the sun settles, you don't seem to do as well, and I'm not saying you can't catch them. The other thing about western fishing out here is we don't tend to fish late at night. Uh, as a kid in New Jersey, I had a, you know, camped out, and we, we fished until about dark, and then we quit and had a cup of coffee at the campfire and hung around a while, and then midnight, would go out to a pool with wet flies. Did I catch any big browns? Yeah, but they were big brown was 15 inches. But I did catch some and catch them at night. We don't tend to uh, out here. We don't tend to fish as much after dark. Number one, it gets cool sometimes, very cool. And uh, normally about a quarter to ten this time of year, you can fish almost to a quarter to ten, and by then you've had enough. You're ready to go home. Yeah. Yeah. My wife and I are working on one 
uh, last year between the lakes, we call between the lakes to Madison as it goes into Quake Lake, and I spotted a real big fish. I'm sure it was a brown, but I didn't see exactly what kind it was. But uh, I worked there, and we almost got divorced twice over that and kept telling her to put the fly in and acting like a guide and a husband and, and uh, getting myself in trouble. But she kept putting that big fly in that bank, and it took a quarter to ten that fish nailed that fly, and it was a big boy, I'm guessing four pounds. It took her downstream. The fish turned around, went up past us upstream, and the hook pulled out. And I didn't yell at her. If she broke him off, I'd have yelled at her. It wasn't her fault. She just was late or something. She just lost him. If she uh, broke him off, then I had then I had cause to yell at her. But uh, I didn't yell at her. I kept my cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to talk to her about the real story of what happened. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the um, you said uh, you know from twelve o'clock on was good fishing time. Uh, that's is that that's when the emergence is happening. I take it. The emergence uh, usually happens in the evenings or on overcast days, and then the fly goes into the willows and dries off a little more and uh, be, and becomes uh, start looking for a mate at that point. And okay. after and they usually it takes several days, they'll find a mate and then they'll the eggs will develop. I'm not sure how long it takes for those eggs to develop. And then within within five days or a week they're back laying their eggs. Yeah. So really the emergence part isn't quite as as important as the flies laying their eggs again. But what really is, once they start emerging and the trout start feeding on the big nymphs, which they, they do for a week or two before the emergence, these, these big nymphs crawl to the bank. And on high water, they get washed down quite a bit, but they're always near the bank. So your big trout are near the bank, and, you know, you're talking six inches away, they see a salmon fly dry, even though it hasn't emerged yet, they're going to grab the fly. And that's what they've done on the last two days, guiding down there. I see. So... So really, you'll pick a few up from just falling in the water during emergence. That's right. But, but really, you're fishing the egg layers is what you're... Exactly. Yeah. When they come back, and they come back and uh, by quite a few of them. It isn't one fly. You get a good hatch, and they'll be laying eggs all over. And over the years, I've seen where there were so many flies on the Madison River that no trout was taking them. And I've seen that even more in Idaho on the Box Canyon. It was loaded with salmon flies, and nothing rose. They were completely filled with nymphs and salmon flies. So there I learned over the years that I like to fish. I'm one of those guys that fish behind the hatch. Now, I don't have as much action as maybe some of the guys do in the hatch, but I get a few fish that are still greedy, and usually they're big fish. But you've got to work hard for them. You keep that fly where you think the fish is. By reading the water, you're looking for some depth of water, maybe two or three foot deep, right along a good high grassy bank, someplace maybe willows lined on the bank, you can get the fly in out of the heavy water in right within a couple of inches of that bank and work that, that kind of quiet water back in there. Even though you have a fast current out here, those fish are right in there looking. And they're looking, so that's interesting. Well, it's time to take a, another short break here. And when we return, we'll be answering more of your questions of Bob Jacklin live on the Internet. This portion of our show is brought to you by Fins and Feathers of Bozeman. Fins and Feathers of Bozeman is the area's Orvis-endorsed fly shop and guide service. Located just west of Bozeman, Montana on the Gallatin Highway 191, they offer trip itineraries for the waters of southwest Montana, as well as lodging packages and a variety of classes and clinics. Their website provides fishing reports for the region as well as online shopping and even features a tour of New Zealand. Call 877-790-5303. That's 877-790-5303, or 
visit finsandfeathersonline.com. That's finsandfeathersonline.com. And tell them you heard it on Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Bob Jacklin about the salmon fly hatch on the Madison River. If you would like to ask Bob a question, just go to our homepage at www.askaboutflyfishing.com and click on the link below the description of the show that says, click here to ask Bob Jacklin your most important question. And we'll receive your questions immediately, and we'll try to answer them live on the show. Bob, before we jump back in, because I know there's some more details we want to cover on the actual strategies and techniques of, of fishing mm -hmm. salmon fly, but could you just take a minute and tell us about your shop and your website? Uh, give yourself a plug here, would you? Oh, thank you. I have a little website that was helped set up for me by some friends years ago, and my wife Sharon does most of the work on it. And we're not on top of it as much. We're still learning. We got another new computer, so we're we're kind of new to all this. But I I'm trying to get in there and update it every week or so, so I can talk a little bit about what's going on in the fishing. My I've been in business about 35 years now, and uh, we pretty much cater to the to the tourist that comes here in West Yellowstone and wants to learn. And uh, I've catered my guides and myself to teaching fly casting and fly fishing. I have free lessons every Sunday night at 7.30 for the last 24 years. And that's every Sunday night all summer long for the last 24 years. So that's kind of fun. We outfit a lot of the – there's a lot of people who would like to get in fly fishing but just are afraid to ask or just don't know how to approach them. And I kind of cater to those type of people as well as the pros that come up here. And I fish with some of the, the best fly – fly fishermen in the, in the world. Um, so I have a lot of fun working at this uh, business and been in it a long time. I'm 61 years old and I started selling flies commercially when I was 17. So I made my whole living uh, tying flies and being in the fishing business. And, and I made my whole living learning too. I'm still a, consider myself a student more than the pro. And I taught the Fenwick School for 10 years when it first started. I was one of the key instructors, and I always figure I was their best student they ever had because I learned from people like Jim Green and Alan and Barbara Rohr and Frank and Gladys, Gladys Gray and Lefty Cray and Dave Whitlock would come up and help and Les Icorn and on and on with names of people. Lee and Joan Wolfe came and spent a lot of time with me, and I, we've got a friendship developed with Joan Wolfe that will last a lifetime and that kind of stuff. So I've always figured I learned from all these people, and that's that's part of the fun. It sounds like you're passing it on. Uh, I'm trying to. Now, you have a full-service fly shop there, right, and guide service. Yes, I do. In uh, West Yellowstone. And what's the uh, what's the address of your website? Our website is www.jacklinsflyshop.com. Okay, so www.jacklinsflyshop.com. Gotcha. And I'm licensed for the state of Montana as well as the Yellowstone Park. I'm not licensed in Idaho anymore. I gave my license up a few years ago. Well, we do have several questions regarding the equipment that you set up oh, yeah. for fishing this. And I wonder if you could give us an idea about how you set up, uh, what kind of ride you like to use, and what kind of line and leader and that kind of thing. Well, pretty much it all starts with the fly. And some people think it starts with the size fish you're going to catch. And I think to a point that's true, too. But it starts with the fly, and the larger the fly you're going to cast, the larger the line you want to be able to turn that fly over. 
So I use a five weight a lot of times. I help St. Croix. I've been with them for about eight years now, and I enjoy the rods. I designed a five weight and a six weight for them, but the five weight rod, I put a six line on a lot of times with the salmon fly. I'll take that off and put a different spool on with my five weight with smaller dries. But when I put the big fly on, you could use a six weight or stick to the five. If you have a six weight output, put a seven on it. It turns the bigger fly over, makes a little bit better presentation by doing that. So it really starts with the fly. I use a nine foot leader, tapered down to probably two or three X, the new, uh, there's several of them, the precision leader out there, but they're all good. I buy a leader and cut it back and, and match it with about six pound test maxima, put about 24 to 30 inches of tippet on there. And I, uh, I end up with a um, end up with about 11 foot leader, maybe a little more. When I was a young guy fishing with Lee Wolf, I thought Lee used too long of a leader, but I didn't say anything to him. He was Lee Wolf; he could use whatever he wanted. But his <laughs> his leader was 16 foot long, wow. and I thought that was a little long. Well, about two years ago in midsummer, I decided, you know, I'm going to measure my leader because I just fixed it up myself. So I measured my leader and it came out to 14. So <laughs> it was pretty close. But anyway, I like a long leader and tippet because I bounce that fly, or what we call checking the cast, and I have a lot of slack. And that, that slack is kind of is bad. It's not always a good thing because you, have, you get a big fish grab and you've got too much slack, you miss them. And I do miss my share. But you know what? I get a lot of fish up to the fly. So I think it's a trade-off. So I use a 9-foot leader, start out with 2 or 3X, 6-pound maxima, which is somewhere oh, close to about that 2X or in the area. And you don't have to get away with a, you can get away with a pretty heavy tippet out here in this western United States. But one thing you cannot do is drag your fly, especially on a big fly. And the other thing about a salmon fly, you want several smaller flies with you because they may reject the big fly. Big trout will come up, put his nose on it, reject it, give him a rest, and you put the smaller fly and he'll take it. So when you're fishing the salmon fly hatch, you want some size 4 High profile, like a big sofa pillow, improved sofa pillow, the big Jacklin salmon fly type thing I use. They have these other ones made out of um, foam now that are big good, and uh, Gorilla, and there's all kinds of names for some of these big salmon flies. And they all work pretty well. And then you want some smaller, or I call lesser stones, the Golden Stone, Yellowstone. Have a few of them with you, too. I carry them right in my fly box, and I'm always ready to switch. So I stick to that six-pound test. Also, we're fishing rougher water. I'm not putting that on slick water. Somebody asked one question, can you fish a salmon fly in a lake? Sure you can, but you're not likely to catch much unless the fish are up cruising looking for a big fly like that, and it's possible. But you really fish it on heavy water uh, right where we have uh, the salmon fly emerges in those rocky areas, good riffles. That's where you're going to find your salmon fly. When you first described your, your leader and tippet setup, you said you had the 9-foot. You start out with the 9-foot leader down to, I think you said two or three X. Right. And you said you, I think you said you cut it back. I cut it back to match. Sometimes these leaders you buy are a little too fine on the end, so I cut it back to match my the tip of it to match my six pound maxima. I see. And I okay. checked that real carefully. And then I forgot to add, I put about a twenty five pound butt section of maxima, about eighteen inches of butt. So you got a nine foot leader and another foot and a half, and you got so that's ten and a half, and then you got two or three feet of tip at 11 and a half, 12 and a half, and you're up to that 13-foot leader. Okay. And that's a little bit tough to handle, but I, I, my goal is, or my rule is, you never use a leader longer than you can handle properly. If you're having trouble handling that, 
cut it back and make it seven and a half foot with a tippet in the butt section and make the whole leader about nine. Whatever works for you is fine. You don't have to have 13 feet a leader to stay away from the fly. A seven and a half foot leader probably will do enough, but you do need a long butt tip section. That tippet needs to be nice and long to allow that fly to act natural. In the high uh, colored water that you're fishing on the salmon fly hatch, do you care about the color of your fly line or are you prone to use fluorocarbon leaders? I, uh, I've just been experimenting a little bit with fluorocarbon. I pretty much, you know, as you get older, you tend to stick with stuff you like so much. And I'm, I'm experimenting with it and learning it. But uh, most of the guides right out here in this Yellowstone region are sold on Maxima Ultra Green. I got a lot of faith in that for not strength. It does a good job. And if I'm down into the 6X and 7X, then I'll play, I will play a little bit more. Uh, with the fluorocarbon and all, because it sinks. There's got some real benefits in that fluorocarbon, but I haven't really spent enough time that, that I consider myself a real pro on it. I'm, I'm always go back to what I'm used to using. I guess that comes with age. When you're casting the big flies, is there anything in particular you do in the casting process to, to make it easier? You know, I know when you've got a big, heavy, uh, you know, big heavy fly, it's sometimes difficult to cast. Are, are there any techniques or tips you could give us on that? The one big big tip I'll give you is use a heavier line, or not maybe heavier, but larger line, like the six weight with a five outfit, seven weight with a six outfit. I really think that that works, and, and uh, it makes your cast so much nicer at a shorter cast, too. I use a lot of roll casts. I just spent a whole four or five days talking about casting, making this DVD on casting, and I'm a firm believer in a roll. I use a roll cast pickup with the big salmon fly that Joe Brooks made popular in the 50s and 60s. Joe didn't invent that cast, but he did write about it and made it popular. And you roll cast pickup and gets the fly moving, the area, the leader moving, and then you simply go ahead and make a couple of good casts. I use a reach cast a lot, and I try, and I really try to do this 100% of the time, I try not to cast upriver with the salmon fly, though you can do it, and I've caught nice fish, and some places you have to. But I prefer to pick my fish first or pick where I think there's a fish and get slightly across and slightly above the fish and do a reach cast over my left or right shoulder, do a reach cast and let the fly go down along the bank first rather than cast up and let the leader come down and all and out. So I really think that's a key in, in salmon flies. It makes that fly look even more natural to the fish. I'm really, that's, I try to pick my piece of water when I fish. In other words, floating from a boat, you just keep casting, and that's, that's how it works. And you pick your water quickly, lay a fly in there. But when I'm waiting, and my, the way I like to float is go from place to place, pull out on islands and work these different channels. That's what I like. And I pick a spot where I either know there's a fish, I saw a fish, or i really sure that there's one could be there, and then I get above them, put myself in the right spot till I get the perfect float, the first cast. It's got to be the first cast. got to be perfect. You can take them on the third or fourth or fifth cast, but you're not likely to. You're likely to get that strike on that first cast, so I try to make that cast perfect uh, the first time. So you've got that reach cast upstream so that the fly is going first, followed by the, the leader, and then the line down. It's so exactly right. That's okay. exactly right, and that's what I choose to do. And you're using and, a floating line both for the dry and for the nymph pattern? Yes, I do. I use all floating. I don't use any sinking lines at all except when I'm stripping in a, in a lake or something using woolly bugger or a pond or that type of stuff. Other than that, nymph fishing, I'm pretty much floating. And I like a bright, I know there's other guys differ a little, but I like the brightest line you can find. 
you got a neon line out there, and I like it. I think it makes no difference in fishing. With 13 foot a liter, I don't know how it could make much of a difference. But I enjoy seeing the line, where it's going, what it's doing. So I like a bright line. And there are those guys out there, especially in some of the New Zealand guides, like a camo line or something in a dark olive type that color. And that's acceptable. That's, that's how they feel. If the trout see it and you're fishing on the daylight, I'd rather a bright line looking up for them than a dark line. But they, I'm a firm believer the trout see everything. If they can see a size 22 fly, yeah. they can see what color your fly line is. I have a question from Randy in North Dakota who wonders, what's, what's the largest fish you ever caught on a dry fly during the salmon fly hatch and what uh, the salmon fly imitation you used was and what time of day you caught it? And okay. I think we're excluding the one you caught last week. Yeah, that wasn't on a salmon fly. That was on right. a little nymph. It would have been nice to take that on a drive. Oh, God, couldn't think <laughs> of it. But anyway, my biggest fish that I can recall landing was a six-and-a-quarter-pound rainbow many, many years ago, and I got the Fenwick Award, and I was on the Fenwick catalog or something in there for on the Box Canyon, and my fly was a standard salmon fly, but what I did in those days is I wove the body, and it was wool, and I had an orange and a black, and I made a, a woven body, and then I put a big piece of turkey over the back and put a bunch of hackle in the front and I just looked at that fly the other day it's a terrible looking thing but I saw a trout rising and I, I climbed down a hill in the box canyon before I floated it or had a boat I climbed down there and I made a couple of casts big roll casts they were to get out because I had no back cast and I took a six and a quarter pound rainbow landed them downstream 25 inches long and that's the biggest one that I ever think I landed measured and landed and I kept the fish in fact he is still mounted here in West Yellowstone hanging on a wall in a restaurant so I kept that the one I got so concerned in the same river the Box Canyon I spotted another one rising years later uh, that looked to be 10 pounds and I never got a 10 pounder and I fixed my line I put a new tippet on new salmon fly got in position it was a rainy day raining like heck and nobody around and this fish, every time he rose, it was like somebody threw a bathtub in the water. He just took a fly. I put my fly over him, and the third or fourth cast, he nailed it, and I, he ran upstream and just spooled me. And I was mad at myself for years later. I'm still mad at myself. I lost that fish. He just overround my spool. It tightened up in nothing but a bird's nest, and I lost everything and lost the fish. <laughs> These were in the afternoon that you caught? This was main, midday, yep. We don't fish much at night. It's just always midday. Uh, and that's, you know, you have a nice breakfast, get out there about 9 in the morning. And, and fishing's best around noon. It's always noon to 4, noon to 5. And that's when the flies are flying. So we've always held with that. The only thing I'm threatening is to try some of that early morning stuff. And twice I did it myself down um, where the river goes into Quake Lake. I got there early in the morning before anybody showed up. And I did have some good action on a salmon fly before. So I've done that once or twice. But those doctors floating the river had first water all the way down. Nobody was in the river ahead of them. And the sun comes up early nowadays, this time of year, out west here. So uh, that works good. You'd be on the water fishing by 7. You're fine, you know. Like fresh snow skiing. Yep, that's right. But, but again, you know, it's nice to be in the middle of the hatch when they're laying eggs and you see the fish taking the naturals. There's nothing better than that. And I've been there and experienced that many times. The naturals were so thick you couldn't eat your lunch. They were crawling on your sandwich. <laughs> they were all over the place. And the trout taking them, you could see splashing trout all over grabbing these flies. So, you know, there's, it depends on what kind of a hatch we have. And some years these trout will fill up on the nymphs and you can't get them on the dries as well. If you can get just kind of the middle of the road 
where they haven't filled up on nymphs, but they know they're around and the dries are around, then you can get them on the dry. But most of the time, really, that one big salmon floss, uh, rainbow I caught, had this is true, had 40, I, I mounted it because I'm a taxidermist all my life, that fish had 40 salmon flies in him and a 10-inch rainbow. Oh, my gosh. And he was a six-and-a-quarter-pound rainbow. And I actually, you know, in the wintertime, I opened him up, dissected the stomach, 40 salmon flies wow. plus this 10-inch rainbow. And the rainbow was in him head first. It was beautiful. Interesting. Sounds, sounds like he was on the buffet line for sure. No exactly. And you I know it was a big stock fish. Somebody had stocked it in a canyon many years ago, fishing game did, and it had sort of a round tail. It wasn't a really perfect fish like a good wild fish would be but it, it was perfect to me six and a quarter pounds <laughs> yeah. i swear some of these fish bob must have a watch on because i know when we were down you know you're talking about starting early in the morning uh, we were down fishing in the san juan river in new mexico and we had been out the day before and we saw that everybody was arriving on the river at, at i think it was like 8 30 so we decided we'd go down there an hour earlier you know than the guides sure. and, and beat them all out we're down there fishing we couldn't catch a fish the guides came at 8.30, and the fish started biting again. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I swear those fish didn't even get up till 8.30. So. Well, you know, out west here we have the cold. I don't know what it's like down there for sure, but we have those cold temperatures like an after bay type thing, cold water. It takes that sun on the water a little bit to warm things up, get them going. And so, so, there's, that so, so there's some truth in that then. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Before you had talked, to, you know, we were talking about uh, wading versus drift boat fishing. Uh, yes. salmon flies that is there one if you can granted there's certain parts of the the madison for sure that you can't float and then there are parts that you can do you prefer to, uh, to do your presentation from a drift boat or or waiting i've owned a lot of boats in my life i only have one right now and i've got a series of about five six guys that work with me i don't like to fish in the boat the boat to me is a place to carry your lunch and okay. that's what i use a boat for i like islands and then I mentioned a bridge before called Lion's Bridge. That's where the float fishing is allowed from the boat, from there downstream, which is north toward Ennis. Above that, you've got some super wade fishing. So you've really got probably 20 miles of wade fishing on the Madison. So I, I didn't want anybody to believe that you can't wade it. My point is on heavy water, it's tough to wade. So by wade fishing, we really mean bank fishing. We're walking along the bank and fishing up river or downriver if you want. On the bank closest to you. Closest to the bank closest to you, that's right. Yeah, yeah. The river's wide enough where you're not going to get a cast across to the other bank unless you can wade out a ways, and that's probably not going to happen right now. That water's up pretty good. It's not flood stage or anything. It's up just about where I'd like it. It's it's moving good, a little off color down by the Ennis area, and looks really good, and uh, at least a foot or two of visibility, which is, I think it's perfect right now. The water above the West Fork area, as it comes out of Quake Lake, is fairly clear. It just cleared four days ago from the uh, place called Cabin Creek and Beaver Creek that empty into the Madison, and that just started turning milky, and finally within a day cleared. But we've been having some rainstorms again, and I'm sure that's raised a little bit of heck. But the river's basically in good shape right now. Bob, could you describe what the take is like on a on a dry uh, imitation salmon fly? It's pretty furious. It's not an easy take. They don't come up and sip it. Maybe a cutthroat would. The cutthroats are a little softer take. But usually a brown or rainbow. And a Madison moves pretty quick. Within 70 miles, it drops about 2,000 feet in elevation. So it's moving pretty good. Uh, and you got a good flow early in the spring. And those fish don't have much time. 
And generally, the fish is going to be, you know, a 16, 17, 18-inch fish, maybe a few larger, that are going to whap, grab that fly, and they take it with a lot of vigor. Uh, so it's a fun, it's really fun. Do I catch a lot of hatch, or do I get a lot of strikes during the day? Not as many as I'd like. I just fish hard. But, boy, when it happens, you remember it. It's a good strike. It's a good take. When they aren't taking the, the uh, dry flies, uh, you're having a tough time with the salmon fly during, during that time of year when the salmon flies are, are coming on. What's your next best bet there? What, what do you switch up to if you're not? I'll switch to a caddis most of the time in about a size 14, and I really think they take the caddis for a lesser stone fly. Keep in mind that during the salmon flies, you get a lot of those little, little olive-bodied stones, some little yellow stones, and you get a whole here, uh, series of everything, including the caddis. So I always thought the trout or think, think the trout take the caddis for a down fly. So maybe you put an elk hair caddis out there, but they don't really take it for a caddis. They take it for just a down fly, whatever it is, possibly small stone. But they take it. So some fish will key in on that, on that smaller fly. Um, usually the little fish will grab that big fly a lot too. Sometimes they don't get it. And the white fish. I'm actually a big fan of the whitefish, but I've taken some nice three and four pound whitefish on a salmon fly, and they have a hard time getting it in their mouth. They kind of slap <laughs> it under underwater first, and then they take it wet. I'm convinced of that, but but they do take it. So, uh, but these trout, when they take a salmon fly, that tail must move because they spray water a lot of times, and that's that's fun. I look I look for that, and then uh, I saw another question here. You know, after the hatch, things get tougher and we get all back to a normal routine. During this hatch, everybody's all wound up. We want to get down. We want to find where the flies are. All the boats are going out. Everybody has a different idea. Fish below the hatch above. It's kind of a crazy time of year. But when you get that fly out there along that bank and you get one big boy grab it, that made the day. And a good 18-inch fish will make a day for any fisherman, including me. I'm very happy. I go out and get one nice 18-inch fish for the day on the Madison. I'm, I'm pretty happy. What about streamers? Are streamers ever an option during that time? I, uh, the last time somebody asked me about a streamer as far as fishing it on the Yellowstone River many, many years ago, and I said, no, streamers don't work real well here on this river for these cutthroats. He put a streamer on and caught a fish. <laughs> caught a cutthroat. So I'm careful on that. But um, generally, streamers are great in the fall. The one problem we have with the Madison River and streamers, the Madison doesn't lend itself very well to streamer fishing. Up above Hebgen Lake, it's probably the finest streamer fishing in the fall there is. For those fall-run browns coming out of Hebgen, it's perfect. The Missouri has got the right flow. It's perfect. The Madison moves too damn fast, and you can't get a streamer to work right. From a boat, a good fisherman can aim downstream a little, work his rod right away, and he's not playing with his line. Everything's right. And he could take some fish on streamers, even clousers. Heavy water, one of my guides fished a clouser the other day and did real well floating. But those are pros that go out there and can handle their line, make a cast, get that line under control, and work it. Otherwise, the river moves just a little too fast for good streamer fishing. So it's never been my favorite. And I talk about the Madison between Quake Lake and down around Ennis, that area there. It just doesn't seem to do it. But above Hebgen Dam, above Hebgen Lake, that water moves much slower, and that's just ideal streamer water. Could you take a couple minutes maybe and just uh, give us an idea of the precautions that uh, are, are recommended on the Madison for things to avoid spreading whirling disease or New Zealand mud snail? Sure. We're trying to do what we can, and uh, fishing game and a lot of the, the Trout Unlimited and a lot of the, the uh, people active in, in trying to present this would 
would hopefully that if you travel around places like that, come to Montana, leave and go to another place, that you take your, your, your felt sole waders, your felt sole boots, and put them in a little Clorox for a while. While you're here, I don't think it's, it's as much as important as it's people who travel, coming from another country, another area, from New Jersey to here, here back to New York, that kind of stuff. I think it, it lends itself that we might take a little more precaution. But as far as whirling disease is concerned, I'm a firm believer that it's trans, transmitted mostly by fish, and it's transmitted by fish that are, have been stocked over the years some way or the other or fish that stocked now or by coumarin. I'm a big believer in coumarin ducks. Whirling disease and the, and the uh, more coumarins around the last 20 years have really showed me something, and that's a fish-eating duck. Mm -hmm. And whirling disease, those spores, are trans they come right through, the, right through the animal's intestines and right out into the river. But I really think it's fish. I don't think we're going to do a lot with felt soles one way or the other. Of course, the mud snail is another problem. So it, doesn't, it would pay to take your shoes Give them a little coat of uh, Clorox or something like that before you go someplace and on the way home to try to keep your clean and give them a good brushing, too. Sure. Well, unfortunately, it's time to wrap things up, gentlemen. When we return, we'll be doing a drawing for two of Bob's books and DVDs, so stay tuned and see if you win. This segment comes to you from Greater Yellowstone Fly Fishers. Greater Yellowstone Fly Fishers Fly Shop and Guide Service is found just west of Bozeman, Montana at Four Corners, on the way to Big Sky and Yellowstone National Park. Conveniently located for fishing the Madison, Gallatin, and Yellowstone Rivers and other waters in southwest Montana, you'll find friendly professional guides, a vast array of flies and equipment in the shop, and fine accommodations. Call 406-858-5321. That's 406-585-5321. Or visit their website at gyflyfishers.com that's gyflyfishers.com and tell them you heard it on Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio from our events calendar tonight we see that beginning tomorrow and running through Saturday the third West Coast International Women Fly Fishers Regional Rendezvous will take place at Mount Shasta, California go to the California page on the global events calendar for contact information and don't forget to remind your local clubs and fly shops to list their fly fishing related happenings on the events calendar. We'll be highlighting one event from the calendar on each of our shows. Just a quick reminder to everyone before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section on tonight's show that says, what did you think about the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. Well, now it's time to give away Bob's books, Fly Fishing, Yellowstone in the Park, and his DVD, Fly Tying with Bob Jacklin. So what Bob's offered here is you get a book and you get a DVD. We're giving two of those packs uh, away, so we're going to do two drawings tonight. In case you're wondering how we do this, basically we have a computer program that randomly selects someone from tonight's registration database. So if you didn't register tonight, then you won't be in that mix. So next time on the next show, be sure you, you register for that particular show. And if you're the lucky winner tonight, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with the information on, on how to receive your gift. So here it goes. So I'm going to pick the first winner, and the first winner is, uh, looks like Curtis Reiner uh, in Pennsylvania. And uh, so congratulations, Curtis. You're the proud winner of uh, Bob's book and DVD on fly time. He'll have to make a trip out west. He sure will, won't he? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure some of these techniques are, are valid in the east, too. Let's hope. 
uh, pick the winner for the uh, second drawing, and we've got Hal Cook in Washington State. They're both going to have to do some traveling, Don. Congratulations. Yeah, boy. Tough job. Somebody's got to do it. Well, thanks, uh, Bob, for, for offering up uh, those gifts on our drawing tonight. We really appreciate that. Glad to do it. Glad to do it. Well, Bob, uh, we very much appreciate having you on the show tonight and uh, taking time to teach us more about fly fishing in your special part of the world. And uh, with any luck, we hope that we can convince you to join us again sometime in the future. Oh, I would be very happy to. I really enjoyed it tonight. On our next broadcast, which will be on July 5th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, on that show we will be interviewing Jay Miracoshi, an accomplished saltwater fly fisherman and guide, and Jay will be answering questions on fly fishing the Sea of Cortez in Baja, Mexico, for Dorado, Roosterfish, Jacks, and Tuna. It's going to be an exciting show, so don't miss it. We'd like to thank 3M Scientific Anglers for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you won't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. And feel free to explore the other areas of our site, like the events calendar and directories. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Good night. Good night, now. <laughs>